Amen. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Well, I want to welcome you to Element Church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element. Um, I want to thank, just like Monica said, Tim and Amy for coming and leading us in worship this morning while our worship uh, pastor is still out sick. Um, I'm going to actually ask that all of you continue to pray for him and his family. Um, Kyle had to be readmitted back to the hospital on Thursday. Uh, the doctors are still having a little bit of a hard time determining what is going on, uh, but he's still in the hospital, still admitted there uh, this morning. And so we're just going to continue to pray for Kyle, for his healing, and then also for Megan and, and their kids, um, just dealing with Kyle being gone and in the hospital and having to handle that and, and the worry. And so I encourage you to just keep praying for them. You know, this weekend for a lot of us, um, depends on how, where you work, but uh, is a three-day weekend because we are celebrating the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, we don't celebrate the life and legacy of MLK Jr. because he was the only one who was fighting for and calling for and working towards um, fighting against injustice. We don't celebrate him because he was perfect. Um, but because he sort of stood as the symbol um, for injustice and things that were wrong in our society. And we celebrate his life and his impact this weekend. But you know, for Martin Luther King Jr., he saw two things. One is he saw injustice. He saw injustices that were taking place in our country, in our society. And the other thing he saw was hope. He saw hope that things could get better. He knew that we as a society, as a country, could do better. He knew that as humanity, we could do better. But his hope was not in the possible change of legislation. His hope was not in what he wanted to see happen in society. His hope was rooted in the gospel. And what he believed to be true about what the scriptures teach, about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how that redefines how we see ourselves and how we see one another. And so before we go any further this morning, I want us to just take a minute to stop and to think and to talk about what we mean when we say the gospel. And to do that, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And so as Monica mentioned earlier, we uh, utilize the Bible app every weekend. And so if you pull out your phone and open up the Bible app, and go to the main menu and events, you can follow along with Element Church there as we work through these scriptures together. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to read a little bit, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to talk together about it. And so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, let that settle in for a moment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the gospel. You and I, and all of humanity, all humans of every color, every race, every creed, every ethnicity, every gender, every orientation, were born dead. We came into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Because of the sins and the trespasses of our heart. That by nature, we were born sinners, and by nature, born children of wrath. But God. But God in his great mercy. But God, because of his love for us, did something about it. That because Jesus died on the cross and in rising from the grave defeated sin and death, we, when identified with Christ, by God's grace, through our faith in him, can be made alive. That through Jesus' resurrection, in conquering death and in conquering sin, through our faith in him and not our own works, not by anything that you or I can or ever could do, because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his defeating of sin and death, we too can be made alive. That the penalties for our trespasses, for our sins, can be atoned for by the death that Jesus died for us. By God's grace, through our faith in him, by identifying with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we can be saved. This is the gospel. When we use that word, when we talk about the gospel, this at the heart is the essence of, of what we're talking about. And for Martin Luther King Jr., it was the gospel that informed his passions, that he knew that we could do better as a society. And, and here's why. Because at, at the end of this, we transition into the implications of what the gospel means for our lives. Aside from the big categorical shift of being dead and now alive, how does that work its way out into everyday life for us? And here we get to see a portion of how that works itself out. We're going to skip down to verse 13. No, I'm going to back up. Let me back up. Let me, let me start with verse 10. So this is where we left off. We had just read verse 9, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this next part gets a little confusing if you're not familiar with the Bible, but we'll explain it. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So let me break this down in case this is a little confusing for you. You know, earlier this year, we did, uh, not this year, last year, we did a series called The Grand Narrative, where we walked through the entire story of the Bible in seven weeks. And what we see in that story, in that grand narrative of Scripture, is that God shows up and makes a promise to a man, and he says, through you, I'm going to create a new people. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to share blessings to every nation on earth. I'm going to utilize you as a funnel to pass my blessings through. This group of people later became known as the Israelites or the Jews. And the ultimate blessing that God funneled through the Jewish people was Jesus. Jesus, born of a Jewish family, as a part of a promise that God made to these Jewish or Israelite people, that he would come to do for all what none of us could accomplish for ourselves. And so you have this distinction between those who are Jews and those who are not. That's the Gentiles. And what Paul is getting at here is, listen, Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, those who are not a part of this family heritage, those who are not a part of that original promise, you once were on the outside But the beauty of God's plan was that the blessing he was going to funnel to and through the Israelites was the Savior Jesus who would die for all. And so Gentiles, you were once on the outside, but you are no longer. He refers to circumcision here, which is odd for most of us to talk about on a regular basis. And it's because the Jews identified themselves and made themselves distinct among other people groups by a number of ways. And there were three primary ways they did it. The way in which they celebrated the Sabbath, their food or kosher rules, and circumcision. Those were the things that made them different or distinct than everyone else. And he's saying, listen, for those of you on the outside, you used to to be considered outsiders by those who were on the inside. And you were far from God because you weren't a part of the promise. But Jesus changes this. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, Jesus is that blessing that funnels to and through the Israelite people to open God's door of mercy and grace and love for everyone. But you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's referring to the Old Testament Jewish law. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it. As you read about the history of Christianity in the early church, 
the very first problems that they ever encountered were as a result of diversity. It was the fact that different people were coming together into one group that started to create tension. And this is a lot of what Paul is talking about here. Listen, we celebrate the gospel because the gospel is God's rescue plan for you and I, who were dead in our sins. But Jesus came to conquer death, to conquer sin, so that in him we might be made alive. And here's the implications of what that means. That means that God has brought those who are near and those who are far together. That God has made one new creation out of what used to be two. That because of Jesus and his blood on the cross, because he is resurrected and makes all of us alive, he breaks down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. That the walls that normally divide you and I, because we're different, different in a lot of various ways, from where we come from, the color of our skin, our ethnicity, our race, our gender, all these things that the world says makes us separate and divides us, Paul said, Jesus broke down those walls of division and hostility. And the very first Christians had to wrestle with this. The very first sort of internal Christian debate and problem was over this very issue. How do you bring people from different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities together? How do we bring Jew and Gentile together? We see this play out in places like Galatians chapter 2, Acts chapter 15, as Christians are wrestling with what this looks like and what this means. And as they come to the conclusion that because of Jesus and what he's done, because of the gospel, those things that used to divide us don't divide us anymore. Because we have new identities. Because we are now alive in Christ. That's what unites us. The next big debate that Christians had to wrestle with was the division of socioeconomic differences. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You had rich Christians and poor Christians, and they used to come together, and when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was a little different than how you and I celebrate it. Normally, we celebrate it with a little piece of cracker and like a little, little shot of juice, right? But they would come together and eat an entire supper together. And what was happening in the early church is that the rich people would bring their food and sit at their table. And the poor people would bring what little they could, if they could bring any, and sit at their table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the church and is like, this is absurd. How in the world could there be divisions among you? Did not Jesus make you all one? So the early Christians had to wrestle with socioeconomic status and cultural status can no longer divide us because we are one. Then the next big issue that the church had to wrestle with was if we're really one, what does that mean for people that I've never met who live in a different geographical region than me? Because what we see is that the Christians in Jerusalem went, went through a severe famine They were dying, they were sick, they were hurting. 
And the question came for all those Christian communities around the Roman Empire who enjoyed more wealth. If they're really one as Christians, which means they're really one with those believers and Christians in Jerusalem, people they've never met, probably who live in a city they've never been to. If they're really one, what does the gospel say about us when one of us is suffering? And the early church rose to the occasion. We see in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Romans chapter 15. The Christians throughout the Roman Empire started taking up offerings and sending it to the Christians in Jerusalem, to people they'd never met before. Because if the gospel is true, and the implications are true, that we're made one, that we're no longer two, that because of the blood of Jesus, the walls of hostility, the walls that normally divide us are broken down, then that means what happens to another fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, whether I know them personally or not, means it affects me too. So let's talk about what that means for you and I today. What does that look like for us today? Well, Jesus, in his final moments before ascending to heaven, gave instructions to his followers. Many of you are familiar with this passage. If you've grown up in church or spent much time in church, this won't be new to you. But just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, this is the charge he gave his disciples and his followers. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our command is to go and to take this message of the gospel. The good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus to all the nations. To cross every boundary that would normally divide us. To share the grace and the mercy and the love that God has for all people. And Christians took this command seriously. This impacted the way Christians acted in the first century when all the things that used to divide them, they started realizing, no, 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 no. The gospel brings us together. The gospel brings unity, not division. There is a, uh, a late professor, former professor of Yale, um, Laman Sanaa, uh, who was a professor of world history and world religions and specifically Islamic studies in the Middle East, uh, who was a professor, a distinguished professor at Yale, who, who wanted to study about the makeup uh, of, of the major world religions in the world. And here's what he discovered, that for almost every major world religion, al almost all of their followers still live in the country or the region of origin for that world religion. So it looks kind of like this. Um, about 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East, not easy, <laughs> uh, the Middle East, South Asia, North Africa. 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. And 98% of Hindus, even today, are found in India and South Asia. But here's what he found when he started studying Christianity. And his study was published before he died, but just at the turn of the 21st century. That this is the breakdown of 
Christianity around the world. It makes around 35% of the world population. And about 12% of the world's Christians are located in North America. 25% in Central and South America. About 24% in Africa. 22% in Europe. And about 17% in Asia and the Pacific. And after doing this study, here's what Dr. Sinak concluded. That Christianity is the only true world religion. That Christianity is more culturally diverse than any other religion in the world. And it's because the gospel breaks down walls of hostility and walls of division. Because the gospel transcends cultures and languages and times. Because the truth that we were born spiritually dead is true no matter who you are, what you look like, or where you come from. And that God's great love for us, His mercy, His grace, stands true for all human beings. And because Christians have taken Jesus at His word, that we are to go and take the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what it means for our lives to all the nations. Now this isn't going to be easy because anytime you bring people with differences together, there's challenge and conflict. Anybody who's ever been married or in a seriously committed relationship can say amen to that. Right? When you bring two different people together, challenge, conflict happens. When you bring large groups of people who are very different, there's challenges. But here's what this looks like for us. Here's how we can have unity in the midst of diversity. On a local level, it means that we as Christians lead the charge in bridging gaps between people of different colors, cultures, ethnicities, and races. We should be leading the charge. As those who believe in the truth of the gospel, that the blood of Jesus brings us together and makes us one. For those of us who, as Paul mentioned earlier, who, who are saved by grace through faith, not because we're good, not because of anything we've done or could do, but because of the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those of us who believe that should be leading the charge and bridging the gap, the gaps between people. That's what it means on a local level. On a global level, it means that you and I should be active in taking the news of the gospel to every corner of this world. I don't know what that looks like for you. Obviously, each one of us on an individual level can't go to every country. We're not going to learn every language in the world. But we are called to be a part of the solution, to be in obedience to Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. If we believe the gospel to be true, on a local level, it means we bridge gaps. We should be leading the charge. On a global level, it means that we should be going to every place and supporting every effort we can to see the gospel taken to every corner of the earth. From a socioeconomic standpoint, it means that we need to be open-handed with our money. 
if Jesus makes us one, if what affects and hurts one affects and hurts all of us, then the struggle and the suffering and the challenge of others should change our behavior, should change how we act. And that's true on a local level and on a global level. The first century Christians set the example for us. They said, hey, it doesn't matter if I've never met those people, if I've never been to their city, if I don't know anything about them. If we're united because of Christ, then what they're suffering, what they're going through affects me. And I'll do what I can to provide comfort and relief and hope and help. Most of us, I'm going to guess, would be more than happy to help a hurting friend. But the gospel calls us to help anyone who's hurting, even those who we don't know, even those who we've never met. We'll have the fortunate opportunity to meet them all one day. Because let me give you a picture of what's going to happen because of the gospel. And we'll close with this, Revelation chapter 7. As John is being given a vision, seeing what it's like to be in the presence of God, what God is getting ready to do in our world, he says this, And after this I looked and behold, and here's the vision God gives him, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and singing in celebration of the salvation that God gives, that because of grace through faith, we can be saved. This is what's going to happen because Christians will take Jesus and his commands seriously. This will happen because Christians who believe in the gospel understand the implications for our everyday lives that the blood of Jesus breaks down walls of division and hostility. As we think about this weekend, as our nation celebrates the life of a man who helped to lead the charge and became the poster for a move to call out injustices. Let us not remember that the unity we seek is rooted in the gospel. Legislation won't fix every problem. Societal norms and cultural norms and mores will not be the solution. The gospel is the solution. The gospel is the hope for me. It is the hope for you and it is the hope for your neighbor. And those of us who embrace and believe in the gospel recognize that Jesus breaks down walls of hostility. And in it, one day we will all stand shoulder to shoulder, those of us who believe, those of us who have been saved by faith, and we will sing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you and your blood have broken down walls of hostility, not only between us and one another, Jesus, but that you broke down that wall of hostility that separated us from you. 
Because of our sin, we were dead. We were objects and children of wrath that we deserved an eternal punishment because of our treason against you. But because of your blood, your death, your resurrection, you broke down that wall of hostility, that wall of division too. And that in you, we can be united to you once again. We can find true life in you. I want you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. As we close our time together this morning, I want to provide you an opportunity to think and to reflect on the gospel, what it means for your life. I want you to have a moment to reflect on how it impacts the way you live. About how the gospel impacts how you relate to people that are different than you. How the gospel impacts the way that You're open-handed with the blessings God has given you in your life to help those who are hurting. But even at a deeper, more fundamental level than how it impacts how you relate to others, I want to give you a moment to reflect on how it impacts you and the way you relate to God. Paul celebrated that we are saved by God's grace through faith not our own works. It's easy to say that you believe that, but it's harder to really live it out. As you sit here this morning, are you trying to earn your status before God? Are you trying to make yourself appealing, worthy, acceptable? Are you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Trying to do it your own way? The, The beauty and the call of the gospel is that you can't and you don't have to. Because Jesus has already done for you what you can't do for yourself. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never embraced that truth, you've never given your life over to God, You've never released control of your own life and said, Jesus, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to place my faith and my trust in your death and resurrection as the means for my salvation, as the means for my identity. I want to give you that moment right now to hand over the rule and reign of your life to the one who died for you. And as we sing and celebrate this morning, It's an opportunity for us to celebrate the beauty of the gospel. To celebrate God's mercy and grace and love for us. And we want to give you that opportunity to respond this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we have this chance to come before you, to sing and to celebrate and to worship. Lord, would you be honored by the way in which we respond this morning? as we open our hearts, open our hands, open our minds to you. Lord, we love you and praise in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?